You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, who is a self-suggestion through our website, which we always love, somebody who wants to tell their story. We're grateful for those fans of the show who want to do that. First, a few words of uh, normal homework assignments for you guys. Follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Please leave some more Apple reviews. doesn't have to be a lengthy review. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. That'll continue to help us grow this Hazard Ground community and get more and more people involved in on everything that we're doing here. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch all of our episodes as well. Just go to YouTube, look for Hazard Ground, and click subscribe. We certainly appreciate you guys following us there as well. Download the Kill Cliff TV app. Uh, you can get all of our episodes there as well. It's completely free. Uh, and don't forget to go to killcliff.com and get yourself some Kill Cliff, including their CBD products, Killer Cliff Sickle right here, a personal fan of all of Kill Cliff's products, clean energy drinks. I use their pre-workout, their post-workout. Just a fantastic product. And a company founded by a former Navy SEAL. A lot of their proceeds go to benefit the Navy SEAL Foundation. And certainly a company you need to check out, especially uh, if you are into fitness and or uh, working out and staying physically fit. Again, killcliff.com. All right, uh, before we get on to this week's episode, again, just one more reminder about our promotion with Amazon. Make sure you go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or into the Sponsors tab, and it'll redirect you right to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping, and we get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Works the same from your smartphone. Very simple, very convenient. If you go to hazardground.com, it'll redirect it to the app and uh, it'll take, you know, it takes you right to the app. All your credit card information is safe. So it's very simple, very convenient and an easy way to help out veterans right from the comfort of your own home or on your smartphone. All right, this week's guest, as I mentioned earlier, is a self-suggestion. Somebody who wrote into our website and wanted to share their story. And that's just so amazing. We're so grateful to people who want to do that, mostly because as we've always said, everybody's story has value and it is important to this big pie that we call the military. Uh, so it doesn't matter what you did or, or where you went or how long you stayed in the military, your story is important. He is a three and a half year member of the United States Army with one deployment to Iraq where he was a Cav Scout. And uh, he also is somebody who wants to share the story of the great NCOs that he worked with. He's a retired specialist and he is Bradley Walker joining us here on the hazard ground. Brad, welcome. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. So, uh, a, a sort of unique story for you. Uh, and again, thank you so much for reaching out because I think it's so important. You know, we were talking before we started recording how you say that it's easy to forget a lot of this stuff and it's easy that people forget about, you know, uh, what people did and the sacrifice that they made. And this is a great way for you to kind of revive those, but also make sure they sort of are etched in history here. So again, we appreciate you uh, being willing to tell your story. Thank you, sir. All right. Uh, for you, somebody who didn't come from a military family, how'd you end up in the Army and why? Well, uh, I played football for eight years. And um, growing up, I, I really liked a lot of military history. Particularly, I was fascinated with the Vietnam War. There was just something about it that just piqued my interest. And I watched a lot of the History Channel on Saturdays when I didn't have football practice. And so 
I was I was a little aware of, you know, military history and what the military does and all that, uh, but never had a family member that, that actually served a day in the military. So I get to the end of my football life and uh, I didn't have any plans. I was hanging out with the wrong crowd. All I knew was that I needed to get off the streets. I needed to get some structure. I needed to get some discipline and I needed to get out of my hometown and kind of there were really no options for me. So I kind of stumbled my way into the Army, really. Uh, I talked to a Marine recruiter first, um, and he said, I'll, I can get you out of here in six months. And Staff Sergeant Ivan, as he came out, of the, uh, came out of the Army recruiting office, said, what did he say? <laughs> and I said, he said, uh, he can get me out of here in six months. He said, I can get you out of here in three. I was, at the time, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. So yeah, I stumbled into it. Yeah, I always always love the uh, competition recruiting stories, right? Uh, they're, always, they're always a lot of fun. Now, uh, you are you're a young kid. Uh, you were ten years old when nine eleven happened. Was there anything about that that sort of crystallized any idea of military service, or you thought the exact opposite? Well, um, I remember that day. That day was etched in my mind. It was almost like a. Um, I didn't really understand what was happening at the time hindsight's always 2020. Uh, we went to school that day. I think I was in fourth grade and the teachers were just, they were all buzzing. They were all, you know, talking what's going on, uh, this, that, and the other. And one of them wheels a TV in to the classroom and we didn't switch classes until about noon. And we got to watch the aftermath of what had happened. And some of the teachers would come into the room and talk. And it was just a, it was a chaotic day. And um, I got home and and, you know, the name bin Laden was was really everywhere. But I was a young kid. I was starting football that year and it was just all really uh, it didn't really mean much to me at the time until I grew up and I understood exactly what had happened. So as a young kid who enters into the army, did you know what you want to do? in the army or you just were willing to do whatever they told you to do? I originally started the route of military police. Um, and honestly speaking, it was a five year contract. And I said, man, I really want to know if I can make it in this man's army. So let me do a three year contract. And, uh, he said, well, I don't really have any available slots, but cavalry scout. And I said, what's a cab scout? And he showed me the video, you know, guys in ghillie suits, dirt bikes, cool stuff, sitting in sniper hides, you know, all the stuff that you really never get to do. And uh, it sold me. I was like, man, reconnaissance, that's, you know, that's pretty important. I know that from military history, reconnaissance really can dictate a battlefield. So, yeah, why not? I'll be a scout. But did you exactly know, you know, that what a scout did or you just had no idea until you saw the video? I had no idea until I saw the video. No idea. I knew that, you know, in like military movies, they always say, hey, scouts reported this and and scouts. So I know the layman's terms of, of being a scout, but I didn't know, you know, what the Army's version of a scout was. Okay, so you're off to basic training where? Fort Knox, Kentucky. Okay, not too far from home, right? Not very far. It was my first time on a plane. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah. So you, yeah, you, you I actually had my first cigarette outside the airport while uh, everybody else just started smoking cigarettes. I guess there, there were some people that something had happened to them. So they were going back into one station unit training. We were all OSUT guys. We were all going to the same unit and they started smoking. And I went over and I was like, man, can I have one of those, please? Because I, I was scared. I was like, man, what did I get myself into? I'd signed that paper, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to be in the Army. And then the time came, and I'm like, oh, man. I started, I'm not going to say cold feet, but I was, uh, yeah, I had a lot of butterflies in my stomach about that. Did you do any reading on basic training ahead of time, or did you just walk into it blind? No, I, I did some reading, and um there were some people like in my circle of friends. Um, my buddy, all red childhood friend, best friend, he had went into uh, the Navy and, you know, he told me boot camp is not like it is on TV. It's not like they show you on YouTube when the camera's on around, they're going to make sure that you're disciplined. They're going to make sure, you know, yada, yada, yada. So I was like, all right, man. And my dad was a pretty hard nosed guy. So I took a lot of it for granted. I was like, well, if I can handle him, Surely I can handle a drill sergeant. And uh, so, yeah, I just I went into it with the uh, a lot of assumptions, a lot of assumptions of what a uh, what a soldier does. Yeah, uh, certainly misplaced. Uh, my mother's four foot eleven in Italian and yells and throws shoes. But uh, even even advanced camp for me was a little bit of a culture shock at how much they yelled at you. So not not like they tell you it's going to be at home at all. So uh, when you get on ground, um, are, are you just sort of like overwhelmed by everything that's going on oh oh i'm shell-shocked i i mean i i could not believe what was uh now you're talking about my first day ground zero basic com you know osut or like reception no like your first day as soon as you get there i mean are they yelling at you is it uh, nice to start or it, it was it was pretty much the drills the drill and instructors sergeants um they were you know they were kind of I didn't know at the time, but they were there to basically relax, you know, just kind of get these new recruits where they need to go and, you know, get them kind of ready, kind of disciplined into the, the Army mindset and the Army groove before they went downrange to go to day zero and, and go through the OSUT. Um, and the night I got there, it was about 2 a.m. in the morning, and this is the first time I realized, like, all right, this is really basic training. Everybody else, the drill sergeant said, empty your bags. And I was assuming again, always assumptions. I assume surely he doesn't mean my, my change of clothes. And uh, he sees me. Uh, I'm at parade rest. He can see me through the, you know, through the, through the platoon line. He comes back there on the second row and he looks me in the eye and he says, why isn't your bag empty? And I was dumb enough to try and respond to him. And he just said, empty your damn bag at the top of his lungs. And his eyes scared me. And that was when I snapped to him was like, all right, I'm in the army. I don't have any control over this situation. I'm government property. I got to do what they say, you know, all this, that, and the other. I got to, got to grow up right now. Yeah. Welcome to the army. Um, so then get me to OSIT and, and what happens there? Um, day zero. I, I came in at about 2.20, 
And Staff Sergeant Ibanez, he was like, don't worry about it. They're going to get you down to fight and shake. Don't worry about it, man. And so I get there, and one of my platoon drill sergeants, Drill Sergeant Charney, this was in about two minutes uh, of us holding the bag over our head. And, and I thought I was pretty strong. I was starting to, starting to struggle. And he comes over, and he says, if you don't hold that bag up over your head, I'm going to destroy your soul. And the brim of his drill sergeant hat was touching the brim of my uh, PC cap. And I remember that you sent such a chill down my spine and it let me know like, man, your parents aren't here. They're yours. You know, you're theirs. It's it's them or the highway. It was it was a crazy wake up call. Everything was so chaotic. They spread everybody's stuff on the ground, kicked it around. I mean, it, it was crazy from a guy that that came from like an old school, you know, uh, I wouldn't say undisciplined, but you know, kind of loose on the rules to that within that instant having to conform to that. It was, it was like walking on the moon for the first time. It was crazy. Did you think you'd made a mistake? Oh yes. Yes. (laughs) I was like, what in the hell did I just do with three years of my life? Is this, is this what it's going to be like? Is this how the army is going to be? I thought I'd made a huge mistake at the time. Was there a point in basic where that logic had flipped or did it take until you had gotten later on down the road? No, it was about, it was about day three. Um, and I had, you know, I'm going to keep it real. I had not taken a deuce in three days and I, that had never happened to me. So you were literally scared shitless. Yes. And I, well, that's what I thought. I, was. I, was like, man, I can no longer go to the bathroom. I'm so scared. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we're sitting in formation and drill sergeant Charney, which for three days now, I'm thinking this man was built in general George S. Patton's lab of the perfect drill sergeant with old blood and guts. I mean, uh, he was my worst nightmare for three days. Every chance he got or him or drill sergeant, uh, Christ got to spoke me all oh, they did. And they, I thought they enjoyed it. They probably did. But he, you know, he asked us in formation. He was like, all right, warriors, who here has not taken a shit in three days? And I was one of the ones that raised my hand. He's like, do not be alarmed. Your body is burning calories at, uh, I forgot the word. I think he said at a cataclysmic rate. And, and you're, you know, it's burning it faster than you can even put it out. So, he said, you know, if you're overweight, then chances are that's you. And, yeah, I was overweight. So that made sense to me. Well, I guess it was a relief that the plumbing still worked, right? Yeah. 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 They got to pay that plumber a little extra. <laughs> when did you finally get to uh, relieve yourself? Well, um, if you're curious about day five. Okay. Well, I know you, some guys, you know, if you want to keep it personal, I know a guy with nine days under his belt. Oh, oh yeah. But he was, you know, he had lost. Oh man. I think he lost. He he was, he didn't even look like him. I mean, he had lost 90 pounds, maybe 80 pounds. And the thing was like 17 or 18 weeks of OSA. He, wow. he had lost a lot of what was the point in time that you just started to feel a little bit more comfortable while you were in basic? It was about three weeks in. I thought um, you were going to say graduation. Started... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, graduation is when I finally started yeah, to feel I comfortable. 
Yeah, really. Um, but it was, it was about three weeks in, um, and it was after the whole, because, you know, the first three weeks, they are literally breaking you down so they can yeah. build you right back up into what they want you to be. It's all by design. And, and you, the light bulbs hit when you get to the next point, like the next phase, as they call it, they got the white phase, red phase. You know, I don't, of course I'm getting that jacked up, but about three weeks in, I was like, man, for some reason I'm starting to starting to get like really passionate. You know, I'm starting to understand like this, you know, what being a soldier is being a soldier is about, about being tough, about being hard nosed, about, you know, taking pride in yourself and, and taking what, you know, other, you know, the average person can't and, and, you know, really. And, and when we started learning about what the cab does and cavalry scouts do, I started realizing like, all right, this is pretty cool. This is pretty cool because, you know, there, there are a lot of jobs out there where you want to go bang, bang, you want to blow some stuff up. But I got fascinated with the fact that a drill sergeant said, if you ever have to fire your rifle in a conventional war as a cavalry scout, you have failed your job. Your job is on the radio, reporting enemy movement all the time, tracking them, whatever. So, yeah, I started to become almost enamored in it after about three weeks. Pretty good. Um, so once basic is over, uh, are you headed to AIT next, I assume? No, we had the same drill sergeants uh, the entire 17 to 18 weeks. Okay, so they did it all in one shot for you? Sir? They did it all in one shot? Yes, sir. Interesting. Yeah, um, and, you know, they were all scouts, too. So they all had the same MOS as us. And, I um, mean, it was, like I said, I didn't even know they'd seen us as human beings until we got to the end of it. And they just kind of like, it was the night before we were going to meet our parents, have the big ceremony, and, and go home. And that's when they started like, all right, you know, You've made it through this. I can treat you like a soldier now. You're about to go to your unit. And Drill Sergeant Charney, which was a thorn in my side for about nine weeks, after after the other eight weeks, I think it was eight or nine weeks, he had started talking about the real Army. He said, when you get to the real Army, this is all going to be a, 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 big, a big light bulb for you. Everything you learn here, all that you've been through, when you get to the real Army, you're going to understand why the method to the madness of why we did, you know, why we are the way we are, because you're going to, you're going to understand your, the chances are you're going to go down range. So, yeah. D- does that light bulb actually go on for you or you kind of disagree with his assessment? Oh, it, it, it came on for me. It, okay. it, it really did. After about a week in, um, in, in the unit, you know, because I, I was a very shy guy. I, I was a funny guy, but I was very shy until I got comfortable around you. So uh, you mentioned that he had said you guys are going to go down range, you know, when you had signed up, clearly you're in a post 9-11 world. I mean, you had to know when you were signing up that this was a high probability, correct? Yes. Um, and, and in a way, um, I had lied to my father because my father was, he was extremely nervous about me, you know, boy, you don't need to be going fighting no damn war in the arm, you know, like all of this. He was more peace, love, prosperity, even though he was a bodybuilder and hard nosed, like he conflict was kind of not our forte. Right. So I had lied to him and told him I was going to be an 88 Mike, a truck driver. And, uh, you know, I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to be on the front lines or anywhere near it. 
And um, so I kind of believed that in a way until I'd understood until they had said, you know, all right, here goes your papers for Calvary Scout training. So, yeah, uh, that, yeah. So when you get to your unit, which is where, by the way, Fort Hood, right? Fort Hood, Texas. Yeah, I, I spent some time there. Um, and you went to the first Cav, right? Good old, yes, sir. Bu- good old Bucky. I had an old first sergeant who referred to the horse on the uh, on the logo as Bucky. I don't know why; it just always stuck with me. Stuff lieutenants remember, um, stuff we forget, but that was what I remembered. Anyway, um, <laughs> so you know, clearly you're going to one of the biggest cav units uh, in, in all the military. So this is what they live, breathe, and die for. Do you start to get a certain level of comfort, like with the military overall, once you get there? Yes, I started. Um, well, let me back up just a little bit. When I had got done. With the with the one station unit training, and maybe it's because I'm only five foot six, I don't know. But I, for some reason, I felt like I was almost indestructible. Like I, I was like, all right, I'm a cool guy, I'm a cab scout. Like I was, I was all gassed up in my head. And um, I get to the unit, and one of the first things I noticed is that the guy that came to the airport to pick me up was a specialist. And uh, he had had a, a combat patch. And that was something I hadn't seen since one station unit training. I'd had some leave, you know, 10 days to see my family. And that was like, oh, like I was seeing staff sergeants, sergeant first classes, captains, um, first lieutenants. You know, they all had combat patches. That was my first time seeing a specialist uh, with a combat patch. And it was like, all right you know, I'm, I'm the fish out of water now and I need to shut up and absorb as much as I can for as long as they'll let me. And because eventually they're going to cut me loose. And do you feel like fitting in at the unit was easy? Yes. Yes. I, I thought because I'm from South Carolina, you know, I thought that I was, I was going to be uh, picked on a lot, but actually uh, I was known as the platoon clown um you know i was i was the comedian i did a lot of funny stuff i tried to keep everybody's spirits high keep everybody laughing yeah um people from south carolina don't get laughed at that much i'll i'll never forget i had a kid in my platoon um when i arrived at fort hood he was from kentucky and his first name was ld just the letters ld they didn't stand for anything they didn't they didn't there was no initials it was just ld and that was his name. And he got destroyed by everybody uh, for having a name like LD. So you, you, you don't have to uh, uh, you don't have to be from South Carolina to be the one that gets uh, gets gets made. Fun oh, of. yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're uh, if you got an accent, um, you better clean up your radio talk and um, you better have thick skin because chances are somebody's going to, you know, add some twang on it or whatever. And, you know, they're, they're not it's not anything personal. You know, right. it's. It's kind of a compliment. So when you finish uh, with OSINT and everything, and you get you get to Fort Hood when? Like I get to Fort Hood month. on September 16th, 2010. I had 10 days. Okay. Or actually 11. I had 11 days of off time, and then I had to report to my unit. Now, you don't deploy for basically about another uh, 10 months or so. So are you hearing anything about deployment when you get there? Um, the... I was in the 1st Squadron, 7th Cavalry, 1st Brigade Combat Team. And um, one of the things that, not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but one of the things that was, you know, notorious in 
my unit and maybe surrounding units was orders were always kind of late. You just expected and assumed it was a unit that deployed a lot to Iraq, had a lot of business dealings in Iraq. So all the NCOs, they've been there. They've done that. These are combat hardened guys. They're like, look, nine times out of 10, we're going to Iraq. So that's what we're going to train for. Uh, we're, we're training under the assumption that we're going to Iraq and they were extremely correct. And of course there were the, you know, there were the rumblings, there were the whispers in the hallways of, yeah, I'm pretty sure I've seen a copy of the orders and it says we're going to Iraq. Da, 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 da. So I was like, all right, Iraq it is. Okay. Did you tell your parents? No, I, I did not tell my parents until, uh, probably about March, April of the following year before I, I realized that I was getting leave. I was getting um, 18 days of leave before he deployed. So I was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to wait about two or three months before. I, I, I really don't want to, the less time that they had to worry about it, the better in my mind. Of course, I was young at the time. And so I told them about March, April. So when you start training up for the deployment and everything, can you really get a sense of, you know, all the stuff you liked about being a Cav Scout and that's, you know, all starting to happen as you do train up? I mean, is it all starting to come together for you? Yes. Um, it, it was, it was a bit, it was a bit mixed um, because for about my first four or five months there, we were doing a lot of conventional um, force on force training. Um, Bradley Gunnery's um, maneuvers, um, you know, stuff like that. I was in a, I was in a mechanized unit. So we were doing Bradley movements and stuff like that. And, you know, the Humvee guys, they would do their gunneries and, and stuff like that. Um, and we would, we would practice dismounted operations and every now and again, and we had an NTC rotation coming up in March. And um, we started gearing up for that in about January, February, we started packing everything up. Um, and for going to Fort Irwin, California. And we got about three or four weeks of pretty good training there. It was, um, you know, they call it the box. And uh, we really had, that was really my first time it started clicking to me like, all right, you're about to go to Iraq. This is extremely serious. This is a, extremely important. You, you got to take everything seriously. You've got to pay attention to detail all the time because lives are going to depend on it. That, that was when it really hit home for me when we started practicing scenarios at NTC and was like, this could be real life and you got to be ready when your number's called. So when you guys leave for Iraq, what do you know about the mission of what you're doing when you get there? We, everything was kind of in flux really. Um, at the time there was, you know, politicians were doing their thing. There wasn't really, there was, all right, you guys need to leave Iraq by this time. But there were still rumblings that we might get more time. There might be a residual force. There might be, you know, they might keep 10,000. They might keep training the assist. There was a lot of stuff out there. And so we were training. We knew that our job was going to be to get supplies, get you know, whatever we needed, any U.S. equipment that we want to take with us, we knew that our job was going to be mainly to convoy escort that north to south to Kuwait so it can be offloaded and, and sent back to U.S. or wherever they want to deploy the assets. 
Yeah, I mean, I was I was on ground. I got there in uh, February of 2011, so we were there at the same time. Oh, nice. Um, okay. And I, I remember, I, I always told people, I said, you know, I told my entire unit, I said, guys, we're coming to Iraq to leave. That's the mission. Leave, right? Like, it, it just never made sense because why would you bring more units in? When are you trying to get everybody out? But, you yeah. know, hey, uh, Washington, and- Department of Defense, and the Army and all their infinite wisdom said this is the way we're going to do it, and so that's how it was done. Um but, you know, the whole mission of leaving was a lot more complex and complicated than anybody gave it credit for. Yes. And, you know, I was uh, I was one that I like to follow the news. Um, you know, that's kind of how it steered me into the military in the first place was following the news, seeing these guys, you know, going out there, doing their job every day. Just some of the baddest MFers on the planet, just America's best. And I was like, man. I want to see if I can do that. I definitely want to see if I can do that. So, uh, you know, I paid a lot of attention to the news and what was going on. And one of the things that was popping out to me uh, about that time frame was that there was a major uptick in, and basically, I guess you could call it sectarian violence in the country. There was, you know, from January to February to March, it seemed like there was always one big suicide bombing every month. And it was, that name kept popping up, ISIS of Iraq, IS of Iraq. And um, I was like, man, you know, maybe uh, this is not going to be uh, the uh, the cakewalk that I thought it was going to be like some kind of camping trip or whatever. Like this is going to be like they're still trying to actively kill U.S. personnel. So have your head on the swivel. No, 100%. And again, I mean, there was – and the other part of the uptick in violence at that point in time is because – they had known that everybody in Iraq was in a defensive posture. We weren't really doing off. There were very limited offensive kinetic operations going on at that point yeah. in time. Very extremely limited. I think one of the only uh, kinetic operations, big operations for that year was the uh, Tikrit assault. And I only really heard about that because our base was stationed near Tikrit and we ran a lot of convoy escort and PSD out of Tikrit. So that was one of the things I had heard, but I got there in early July. This was, uh, this was right after, um, they had had five, five soldiers, I believe killed in a, in a rocket attack all at once. Um, so, I mean, things were, things were tense, but the NCOs did a great job did a great phenomenal job of keeping everybody calm and just uh just to back up here i know i just plowed over this um to the ncos um when i got to the unit i thought it was going to be more screaming yelling smoking the crap out of me you know banging my head around you know a lot, a lot of that stuff and um one of the things i noticed was that the ncos were like look we ain't got time for all that we got time to train you we got to bring you in. You understand that we're your leaders and you got to respect us. You understand that. But we're going to get a little close because you got to be able to trust me. I got to be able to trust you. We got to believe in each other because when we're over there, we're all we're going to have. So they wanted to make sure that we were getting close and they wanted to take us under their wing. It wasn't no, oh, these new guys, this, these new guys, that, that, you know, some of these movies portray. It was, hey, I care about you. I want to see you go home and I want to give you every bit of training, every bit of advice, every bit of information I can so that you can get home to your family. That was, and that's why I'm so appreciative of those NCOs because those were guys that have been there. 
two, three deployments. Those were guys from OIF one guys from the, the operation Anaconda were in the unit. I mean, there, there were guys that just had their metal tested at the highest level. And, um, I just don't think they get the respect they deserve. I think that those guys deserve a lot, a lot more recognition, a lot more respect. <laughs> they probably deserve a lot more pay for what they got to put up with and, and what they got to do. Cause you know, there, there are a lot of guys, I mean, their job is also, once you get to your unit, they got to make sure you're training, absorbing of learning. And if you're not, then they got to make sure that, you know, you're, you're not anywhere near somewhere where you can screw up the unit effectiveness. So, I mean, they got a lot of jobs and, and, more respect to him. I, I had some great NCOs. No, well said. Um, take me through a typical Cav Scout mission for you in Iraq during the deployment. Okay. Um, we would wake up, I would say we would wake up at about midnight. You know, of course, we get the mission briefing the day before, about, I'd say about noon, maybe we'd go through an op briefing. Hey, um, we're taking. This many, we knew how many trucks we would have to escort. So, hey, we're taking 50 of these uh, KBR trucks. We're taking them from uh, Fob Kalsu to Fob Taji or, or, or Fob Spiker to Fob Taji. And it's going to probably estimate to take this long. There, The roads are black, red, whatever the condition of the roads are. And, you know, any IED, any attacks against U.S. or Iraqi troops, checkpoints, anything like that um, was briefed in the past 24 to 48 hours. And also we would also have, you know, like in it in our mind because we had wound up driving on a lot of these streets a lot. And so they it, it kind of becomes like you kind of understand your surroundings after a certain amount of time. Um, so that that was that was mainly the mission briefing right there. And then, so they give us some time to chill. They give us some time, you know, you can go work out, you, you can go get chow, whatever you want to do, call your family. If the Wi-Fi is up or, or the phones are working or, you know, do, do whatever you do, do your dwell time, your relaxed time, but you better be at the trucks at midnight at this time and not, you know, you actually better be there. You know, they tell you to be there at, you know zero whatever zero thirty you better be there zero zero you better be there on the dot ready to go and so we would go into that with pmcs our vehicles um make sure they're ready to go uh go over our packing list um you know weapons checks systems checks all that kind of stuff and then we would have a uh we'd have a briefing again kind of like a uh you know, get the spirit up. Let's get the, let's get the juices flowing. Let's get our head on a swivel and understand what we got to do. And then we load up and we get ready for SP. Were there times where you guys ran into enemy contact? A few times. Um, one time in particular, um, I was the, uh, platoon sergeant's vehicle, the senior scout vehicle. It was, we kind of had some some bouncing NCOs and stuff. So we had some guys covered down, but our senior scout was also the uh, platoon sergeant and I was his driver. I was in the middle of a convoy escort and we got about seven on a big load. We got about seven or eight trucks, uh, 53 foot trailer trucks in between us all. And, um, some, somebody decided some insurgent decided to take a couple pop shots at the rear vehicle as they were passing by. And, um, we had to, 
us an additional gun truck had to go huh, man we had to go like 400 meters back to get to uh to get to the the truck and they were driving up towards us so they had intersected us and they had drove straight into the uh it was fob taji and they drove straight into the fob and it was just all like the whole time i had turned around and i knew that we were going towards them i was like all right you know this is it this is this is this is where we uh this is where we test our metal and all this and they intersected us and i was like oh like this is this is it like all right so they're going they go inside because the roe at the time was unless your vehicle is disabled you push through that um you're not really uh you don't have the initiative to make contact uh unless you have positive identification unless you can basically smell the dude shooting the rifle i mean that that's basically what i joked about um so yeah uh, it was basically when they got shot at they were they knew their job was to push ahead uh gun trucks were on the way to get them and i believe the other gun truck went to the back of the convoy secured the back of the convoy and we escorted that truck into fob taji i didn't see what had happened um we we had stayed there at the um, entrance to taji just kind of like a show of force um you know keeping a presence out there until the threat was either identified or went away or whatever um that was really um outside the wire that was like one of the closest incidents um the main what mainly uh the main threat was really rockets and mortars mm-hmm. yeah. that were coming into the base. I was at joint base Balad, and it was a pretty big installation. So there were a lot of good targets, um, you know, for mortars and rockets and, and whatever, um, whatever they could throw at us. And I, I want to add something here. Um, the other platoons, blue platoon and white platoon. I, I don't know if we had like a, uh, I, I don't know if we just had luck, if, if, if it was an act of, of God or whatever, but it just seemed like we always missed trouble. And one thing that um, one of my senior NCOs, platoon sergeant, always emphasized, he said, look, these people want us gone. They want us out of here. You treat them with respect. Um, you look like you don't, you know, you're the one not to be fucked with. Their chances are they're going to leave you alone. If you go out there, you start flipping people off, you start honking your horn cutting cars off all that stuff you're asking for trouble just do your job you know i'm not going to say politely but do your job in a in a dignified fashion and you know that was kind of the thing on the ground if if you look like you don't want to be messed with and you're doing your job chances are you're not going to be messed with so that was a key point of emphasis you mentioned uh, stuff inside the wire. Did did something happen to somebody inside the wire on a rocket attack or a mortar attack? Yeah, I mean the the Iraqi army, Iraqi police. They, uh, I mean they they were you know those mortar and rocket attacks. This was such a big installation, and we were all the way inside of it. We were in the middle of it, so they were the ones taking all the casualties. Um, the Iraqi army and the Iraqi police, and and. Um, you know, we, we would see the fire trucks and the ambulances. The closest closest I ever got to anything was I was I was on the way to a chow hall and um, there was a couple staff sergeants in front of me and it was me and a friend Bonstetter and uh, a mortar came in. Like, it, it was pretty close. It was about 250, maybe 300 meters away. Um, you could see the uh, little plume in the distance um, and then you then you heard it. 
and uh, we had hit the ground, and they, the staff sergeant hit the ground, too. And I was sitting there, and me and Bonstead were looking at each other, scared shitless. And the two NCOs had looked at each other and just gave each other this little, <laughs> you know, kind of laugh. And they just got up and was like, hey, let's go to the chow hall. And I was just sitting there like, man, that was close. And of course, my version of close at the time. Um, but, yeah, that was really the closest anything's ever happened to me. There was a couple wire breaches towards the end of our stay because – I guess the Iraqis knew that um, a lot of our unit had, you know, started moving down. We were closing down that base. So we were we were one of three of the last units there. And there was a couple wire breaches. I don't know if anything ever came to fruition. You know, could have been a lot of things. So this deployment goes on. Um, and the, by the way, the main effort had all closed up shop by December of 2011, but you guys had stayed on past that. Why? Um, well, we were, we were in, uh, we were on the border of Kuwait okay. and our job, one seven's job at the time was it was QRF for any convoy that was coming from Iraq to Kuwait that was in trouble. Got it. Um, our, our Lieutenant Colonel was like, Hey, we're there. Not one, one. So, you know, if you take that, how you will. Um, so but you yeah, guys, that, you that guys had pulled out of Iraq. Us. And we're waiting at the Kuwait border to finish out the rest of the deployment. Yes. Well, at the time, there was there was a post on Facebook that was like, hey, man, listen, Gary Owen, hope you didn't turn out the lights. We're going home and we'll be home before Christmas, whatever. So we got all excited. And uh, a lot of the senior NCOs were like, man, look, I don't know who put that on there, but that is not true. They got us for a year. They're going to use us somewhere. And uh, so I, I was naive and I got my hopes up. Oh, you know, I'm going home six months. I got my little taste of deployment. Got my little taste of Iraq. I'm going home. No, no. You're going to go sit in Kuwait um, and be uh, be QRF and, and train. And, and, You're you going to go advise. sit in Kuwait and be completely miserable is what they should have said. Yes, yes. A good old Camp Buring. Yes. One of the worst places on earth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I didn't want to say it, but yeah, that no, was my it's... first time um, that I had said, you know what? The next day uh, we had set up, we didn't have anything set up when we got to those tents and we had set up 50 men tents. It was uh, two platoons, uh, you know, scout platoons, about 20, 25 guys. So it was 48 to 50 guys in a tent. And we had to set up all those racks. And I remember just saying, I was like, Dude, I would love to be back at Joint Base Balad. It was sweet. The Air Force was cooking us marinated chicken breasts. You yep. had steak and surf and turf and all this. I was like, man, we're in Kuwait now, not even in a combat zone. And this is horrible. There's nothing to do here but train. <laughs> Crazy. That and go to the gym. I mean, um, yeah, it gets swole. It's amazing to me still. Uh, we are now going on, what, 30 plus years. Uh, of being in Kuwait uh, on annual one-year rotations. Uh, it's the worst place yeah. on earth, the worst exact, worst military summit you can have. We haven't figured out a way to stop doing it yet. Go figure. And, and it seems like if you're a mechanized unit, they got your number. Because it was, we were, I think we replaced a unit from 3rd ID, a uh, mechanized unit. And then there was a unit from 3rd ID that was coming to replace us. So it was kind of like, I guess they like to, you know, keep a mechanized unit there just to, yeah run them around and train them. Well, you got nothing but desert and open land or we'll run tanks. Over <laughs> yeah, so, perfect all the it. space in the world. Um, all right. So you, I assume that the rest of that deployment finishes out pretty mundane and, and simple on the way out. 
Yeah, uh, we, we were watching the stuff that was going on in Afghanistan, and, and they just wanted us to basically the whole time we were there in Kuwait, it was to keep a heightened alert and just train, train, train for whatever scenario may come our way. We did a little bit of everything. Um, we got to work with, uh, we got to do some LARP training. We did a LARP mission that was like an overnight, um, it's like about 16, 18 hour mission, I think. Uh, and, uh, it, it was, it was pretty cool, you know, using your night vision, walking through the desert, trying to find your way around. That was pretty cool. Um, but it, it was a lot of training for, you know, trying to be the jack of all trades for whatever, cause we didn't know what was coming down the pipe. So we just wanted to stay ready for everything. So when you finally get the call that you guys are going home, uh, thoughts, reaction, feeling like, was it tough to believe you think they were going to extend you? How, how did that all go down? I felt like the whole time I was sitting there in Kuwait, just looking at, you know, Iraq, I, you know, figuratively looking at Iraq, just like, all right, when's this thing going to go wrong? When's this going to go wrong? Because I know that, uh, you know, not trying to be mean, but, I know that a lot of the Iraqi soldiers and policemen that, that I seen, I don't, I don't think that, uh, I didn't think that they had necessarily like wanted to, to fight. I think a lot of them were there for a paycheck at the Mm -hmm. time. Um, and so I was a bit worried. I was like, man, and I, our interpreter was still over there. Alex, he was, uh, he was still trying to get his visa. He didn't get his visa until I think it was 20, maybe late 2013 or 2014. So, you know, I, I was thinking about him when I got back home. I was like, damn, he, he's helped us out and he's helped a military unit out before that. And I'm sure before that, and you know, I'm ready for him to get over here and, and make sure that he gets the recognition he deserved because he was awesome. So we finally get back home. Uh, talk to me about that. Like, do you know at that point in time that you want to be done with the Army? I did not. Um, I was married at the time and I, I didn't really know. Uh, I didn't really know what the future had held for me. As soon as I got back, when I got back home, I was really decompressing and I made a lot of bonds with a lot of good people. And, um, you know, we had just went through that together and, you know, it was kind of like, I just want, you know, I'm sure you can relate. You just want to be around those guys. You know, you want to hang with those guys. They're, they're your brothers, you know, um, but once after that wore off, I realized that, all right, we just drew down our rack, um, word on the street. And it, it kind of already started happening around the time I was getting out was that Afghanistan, you know, the combat mission over there was done. And, um, you know, I really signed up to, you know, test my metal and, and see if I could make it, you know, see if I can hack it and see if I can perform my job. And, uh, I, w- I was there for mainly the action and I realized there weren't going to be any more action. So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to take my cards while I got them and I'm going to get out. Did you feel any reservations about that decision? When, when ISIS had full fledged in 2014, I definitely rethought about that. I was like, man, like, here we go. It, it's here now. And U.S. troops there sent for advise and assist. But at the time, I was like, all right, I think this may turn into, you know, they may have to send combat troops over there to push ISIS, you know, out of some of those cities. Because at the time, the Iraqi army and the Iraqi police, they were kind of, you know, they were, they were getting hit pretty hard. And um, that really ended when 
the Iraqi army, specifically Iraq's um, gold division, um, that really, really cracked special operations division when they started getting their victories. And I was like, all right, so the people of Iraq are going to, you know, they're, they're pretty much telling us this is, you know, we're, we'll take it from here. This is this is our fight to win. And so I was like, all right, well, I, I think it's officially over. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's really what I joined the army for. I was naive and I was like, I want to go deploy. I want to go deploy to Iraq. I want to go deploy to Afghanistan. And I got humbled, of course. In so, what way? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, in what way did you get humbled, though? Um, well, I knew that, first of all, I was not invincible. Um, I knew that I could, I could, you know, I could be killed. I could, I could die just as easily as anybody else. Um, I knew that I wasn't the baddest man on the planet. There was, there was somebody else that was badder than me. Um, and, uh, yeah, those were the real main things. It, It was, it was humbling in the fact that, that, you know, no matter what happens to you, like these IEDs, these EFPs, these rockets, these mortars, they don't have anybody's name on them in particular. They're not assigned to anybody. They could go to anybody at any time. And that was a pretty humbling experience. And, and you know, during training, some training exercises, I would, you know, I would mess up and I would get humbled really quick by a sergeant and they would let me know really quick, this is where you are. This is what I need you to do. And I need you to do it to the best of your ability. Did anybody try to keep you in talking to staying or no? Yes. Yes. There was uh, I mean, other than the retention NCO, I mean, just like your friends and buddies in the squad. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, yes. And I mean, it sounded good at the time. It really did because that at that time I was so young that that, that was really all I knew was army life. And I was scared. I had my reservations about coming out into the civilian world and, and trying to make my own way because I didn't really know much about the civilian world from an adult perspective. Um, you know, my adult years were, were in the service and I, I had, I had a captain to the captain of our, uh, our troop was, uh, he was like, you should come and be my 50 cal gunner. You should sign on for a year and just come be my 50 cal gunner. And at the time it's because I'd hit nine out of 10 targets at the 50 cal range. And that was the first time I'd ever did that. And I guess he thought I was hot shit or something. So he wanted me to come be his gunner. And, um, I had a few soldiers that were like, come on, man, stay extend for a year. Uh, there was a deployment to, was it Romania or Poland? It, it was somewhere in Europe. They, they were going on deployment there. And once I had heard about that, I was like, hell no, I'm not going over there to Europe in the cold. I don't do cold well. I'll do the desert. I'll do all that. But no, nah, no to the cold. Oh, man. And look, we're going in Eastern Europe now anyway. So good job. Uh, <laughs> yeah, really. See, see, like, yeah, better start to the cold. <laughs> um, but did you know what you wanted to do when you were getting out? Did you have any idea? I did not. At the time, all I all I wanted to do was like, man, I wanted to find a little bit of peace somewhere. Like I wanted to find a job that gave me some peace, some some, you know, some value at the end of the day, you know, work hard. I, I wanted to find my just be normal, you know, just kind of just be normal, not necessarily put the military behind me, but, you know, start taking advantage of the, the time I got left and and trying, you know, 
try and normalize life as much as I can and, and, you know, just be a normal guy. What's the one thing you miss the most about the military? One thing I miss the most about the military, it's kind of cliche, but it's definitely the camaraderie. Um, when I went in, my expectation was that it was going to be a cold, dark world in the military and, and you were not going to get close to anybody and all this and that. And it was, oh, it was the exact opposite because everybody was there for the same reason. Everybody wanted to serve their country. Everybody wanted to give it their all. Everybody loved the United States and, and believed in what we were doing. And, and it was a beautiful thing. And I don't think that's something there, there was little pieces of it that you could replicate with, with sports, but uh, no offense to them when you deploy and, and you go through those emotions with that guy and, and see their life change in a year, you go through all the ups and downs, man, all the highs and lows of their life. Um, you know, pe- stuff happening to people had a few friends get hit with EFPs. Luckily they were duds. I mean, you, you just got to deal with stuff in life through them. And it just brings you so much closer together. And when you get out, that is probably the biggest thing you're going to miss is those guys that you spent that time with. What's the one trait or the one thing that you learned in the military that you still use to this day? Taking the initiative. Um, that is, that is one thing that I learned. I wasn't a guy that took the initiative when, um, you know, before I went into the army but the army had, had taught me, you know, when you take the initiative, chances are you're going to have odds in your favor. So take the initiative, get that head start, get that, get there early, get there, whatever the case may be. Take the initiative always. And so what are you doing with yourself now? I work in lawn care. Um, I, I pretty much, I make the majority of my money um, during the summer. This is the slow season right now. Right. Well, I, I think, you know, again, the idea that you've been able to stand on your own two feet after all this experience, you know, and be able to uh, sort of live life on your own terms is, from what I'm hearing, sounds like it's part of the reason why you went in the military to begin with, right? Like it was it was part of yeah. the reason that you, some of the things that you wanted to get out of it? Yes, I, I you know, and like I said, this is all hindsight, but I, looking back at it now, the Army was probably the reason why I am able to do this right here because the army gave me so many tools and, and the NCOs that I was with, they, they just all gave me so many tools. There's so much you can learn. And, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people that are not veterans. They're like, yeah, you only learn military stuff. No, no, that's not the case. I mean, these guys, they pull you in, they treat you like sons, they treat you like brothers, whatever. I mean, you get taught finance classes. I mean, you, you get taught a lot of stuff. And you're going to be able to take this stuff and utilize it, you know, if you can find a way to utilize it correctly and and uh, use it the right way. Yeah, you can definitely use these tools to navigate you through life. And I just the whole reason why I wanted to live simply is because I just, I felt like, all right, I had got my fill. I I had done what I came there to do. I, I deployed, you know, I, I felt like I got what I needed to get out of it. And I can go on with my life. I just, there was something in me that just said, I wanted to serve my country. I wanted to serve my country. And I wanted to say I served my country. And it would be even cooler if I got to say I served my country in a time of war. You've been uh, 10 years removed now from your deployment. 
if you got back together with all those NCOs and everything, um, what would you say to them now, 10 years later? Um, well, in the first five minutes, you know, it'd be a lot of joking around, but the first five minutes would be all business. And um, I would pour my heart out to them and I'd tell them, you guys took me in when I was just naive, young, didn't know how to be a soldier, you know, it didn't know how to be a, a soldier in a real unit. And you guys look past all that. And you took me in because I wasn't the most perfect soldier. I, I will, you know, I, I didn't necessarily get in trouble, but I was, a, <laughs> I was a slow learner and I had some NCOs, thankfully that had some extreme patience and they pulled me in and they taught me how to be a scout, taught me how to be a soldier, taught me all the discipline and, and kind of let me into the, the, um, the circle. And I, I can't thank them enough for that. And some of the stuff they taught me not only helped me on deployment and, and in Iraq and in Kuwait, but also in life. Um, even today, um, you know, I lost, uh, my father in 2019 and I'm lucky because in a way I had some, some uncles or big brothers that, you know, I'm still able to bounce stuff off of them and I'm still able to talk to them because, I'm 30 going on 31, you know, I'm still learning how to be a man. I'm about to be a father in July. So I, I just can't thank them enough. And all the junior, junior guys I served with E4 mafia, um, all those privates, you know, I get privates every now and again that, uh, that I serve with They'll one particular message me last year, a guy that I was pretty high on. And he said, uh, he sent me a, a picture of a E4 holding a, it was these Ninja Turtles and it was an E4 holding a private and a private first class's hands and says, we all know that one specialist that is the reason why we're still in the army. And, and he sent me that and he said, this is you dude. And uh, that made me feel pretty good. It's like, man, I was able to, I was able to at least, you know, shape and mold one guy and one guy gave me the credit for that. And that felt great. And so now's my time to give the credit to all the NCOs. They, uh, yeah, they kept us alive because it was not easy. It was not easy. They had a lot to do. That's amazing. And that's great. I mean, honestly, and it's as simple as the old Christian philosophy. Like, you know, even if you save one sheep and the whole flock disperses, right? I mean, you still, you made an impact. Um, and, and if you've made an impact on one soldier, um, then you've, you've served yeah. enough of your purpose to continue to, to, make the army a better place, right? Yeah. Through them, one of the big things that stuck out to me was integrity. Like integrity was a big thing with, uh, with my NCOs. And these were guys that, man, they, they were at some of the highest points in the war on terror. And so for, for them to, you know, for me to see their human side and to actually hang out with these guys inside of Bradley and, and sometimes even off work, you know, it, it was, uh, it was eye-opening, and it made me a better soldier for sure. Any final words uh, that you'd like to leave those NCOs? Yes. Um, to all the NCOs that helped me and, and my battle buddies and um, even the drill sergeants and OSUT, um, you, guys, you guys did your jobs well. You did your jobs to your fullest extent, and I think you made some great, brave young men who have went on and, and done great things, whatever that future holds for them, they went on and they did it. And I think you guys got a lot to be proud of. And for all the NCOs that have, 
you know, they were in my unit that went there, did that, and went back for some more two, three, four, five times. You guys will never, ever get the recognition that you deserve, ever. I don't, I don't think that's possible, what you've given up for this country. And maybe one day, maybe this country will give you the recognition you deserve, but I definitely recognize you, and I'm so thankful for everything you guys have done because you guys are, in my opinion, you guys are the next, next great generation. Perfect words uh, about the NCOs and the NCO Corps and what they've meant not only to uh, folks in the Army like you and me, but, you know, uh, every NCO across all branches. You know, I mean, that, there really is a, a reason why uh, they are the backbone of what we do. And certainly uh, it's great to have somebody uh, of your rank, of your position, show that sort of respect and admiration for the job that they have done. Uh, because it, you're right, it's not said enough. It really isn't. A lot of what we all do is fairly thankless. But, um the way they molded you and the way you were able to mold a young private, you know, speaks to the job and the level of, of work that they did and how important it is. So uh, I certainly appreciate you sharing those thoughts. Yes, sir. Well, again, uh, thank you so much for volunteering to share your story. It is important. Um, it doesn't have to be some thing that's made into a book or a movie or anything like that. Your story yeah, is it's not some sexy comment. No, but, but that's the thing, brother. Like it doesn't have to be. I always tell that to people. You know, there there are so many people we ask to come on, they're like, I don't really have a, a great story. Said, that's not the point. It, you know, your story and the message you just conveyed is important. Uh, and even if your story, you know, was only uh, twelve months in Iraq and Kuwait, it, it doesn't matter uh, in the big picture of things that, because it's part of the big picture, you can't have the whole picture without your story. And certainly not the story of those NCOs that you just wanted to illuminate and bring to light, um, and, and share about how much they have done and meant to you and others, uh, throughout the, throughout your, your lives and, and their careers. So I, it's incredibly important. It doesn't have to be sexy, man. It just has to be effective. And, and I think that's yes, what the story is about, right? Yes, sir. All right. Well, Bradley Walker, we appreciate you joining us and thank you for being part of the hazard ground. All right, thank you. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 